This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This next story, well, it's our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And Alex today brings us an unusual story from a guy named Bill Koch, an entrepreneur with 1,300 employees. Here's Bill. You know, what I really like, if you look at a great painting, you can tell the love the artist did in creating it. And to me, that's precious. And that's what creates, in my opinion, great art. You know, is the love for what the artist was doing. And then food, too. You know, with an outstanding chef, you could taste that. Oh, my God, this tastes differently. Because he put a lot of love into it, which means he put a lot of energy and thought and everything else into it. And the same with a bricklayer. You know, if he really loves his work, he takes a little extra care in doing it other than slapping it together. And the same thing with wine. The great wines, you could really taste the love that the vintner had in making it. And so that, to me, is highly offensive when someone is faking it. Bill found out that four bottles that were sold to him as Thomas Jefferson's were fake. And then he found out that more were too. There's a huge code of silence because the faker doesn't want to know that he's faking. The middleman who's selling the wine doesn't really want to know if it's fake. In fact, there was one big auction house that was selling a lot of wine in New York in auctions, and they had to have this retailer deal with them to get through the laws. And uh, the guy who owns the retail shop said, why are you selling a lot of fake wine in this auction? And the head in-house counsel versus the outhouse council <laughs> said authenticity is an opinion and we're not in the opinion business we're in the business of making our margin so just ignore it and then the guys who buy the fake wine if they find out it's fake they want to get rid of it and get their money back so primarily they either dump it into the auction market or they give it to a charity to auction off or they find some sucker that will buy it. Some of the fake wines I bought were from charity auctions because the guy gave it to him and he got a tax deduction on it and some other <laughs> schmuck got him. Mainly me, <laughs> I got him. <laughs> and so I just said I'm, I'm out of on a crusade. A legal crusade. To shine a bright light on it. And I also, I guess because when I was younger, I was taken advantage of by people when I was naive. And so I said, I just hate being cheated. Hate it. One of the fakers actually offered to give Bill all of his money back. And Bill said, no, we're going to court. That's right. (laughs) Well, I ended up in one real long lawsuit, which we won hands down. And then after that, everybody wanted to settle with me. And there was one guy who said, well, I sold you these fake bottles. Would you give them back to me so I could give them back to the guy that sold them to me? And so I said, all right, I will. But then I engraved on the bottles counterfeit and gave them back to him. I haven't heard from him since. (laughs) (laughs) One big faker sent me a fax 
saying, why are you worried about fake wine? Even Jesus turned water into wine. <laughs> and I'm hoping I could get him into a court in the Bible Belt, <laughs> but I couldn't. <laughs> One guy had a huge collection of pre-World War II bottles of Petrus, which is one of the best wines in the world, and oversized bottles. And I bought a bottle of 1921 Petrus in a double magnum. And I opened it up. God, that tasted like the cheapest wine I've ever had. And I looked at it, and there was an article about this wine, about how it was found and who found it, etc and it was rated 100 out of 100. That's why I bought this bottle. And what the guy did, the faker, I mean, they were Hardy Runestock, poured in 1957 wine into the bottle and he made a fake label. We even found the place where he bought the bottle and we found where he had the labels printed. And he poured in 57 wine, put in some juice that made it taste old and smell old. I said what he did was put moose piss in it for me. <laughs> and we took this bottle to uh, Petrus and they said they never made big bottles pre-1945. And this one guy who had this huge collection of huge bottles called me up and said, are all our bottles fake? And we said, yeah. How do you know? Well, we went to Petrus and they said they never made them. <laughs> and they said, oh my God. And then uh, a month later, he called up and said, well, why don't you buy these bottles for me? And I said, why? And he said, well, it's good evidence. I said, well, I don't need to pay you. I'll just subpoena you. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, crusades turn out to be long and very expensive. <laughs> Bill has spent $35 million going after the fakers over what was originally a $400,000 wine fraud and some might say that's a crusade not worth it, spending 87 and a half times the cost. But for Bill Koch, it is. The crusade isn't about the wines. I mean, it's a little bit about the wines, but Bill could have bought new wines for far less. What it's really about to him is the rule of law. And Bill's pursuit of the rule of law ended up exposing an industry of tens of millions of fake wine. I try to say, well, it's bad business to cheat when you get caught. And great job, as always, by Alex. And thanks to Bill Koch. And you might be thinking, expensive wine? How does this relate to me? But if you have ever been cheated, passed along what we in New Jersey would call a fugazi. And I know I have a dear friend who bought what he thought was a real diamond for his wife and spent real money. And it was a phony. And it turned out the guy had been peddling a lot of fake diamonds and to a, a really a harmful detriment of a whole lot of families. A rule of law series, because let's face it, sometimes the cops can't get these people and sometimes, let's face it, uh, no one else can. Sometimes we, the citizens, have to go out and find these fakers. But if we can't bring them to a court of law, if we can't have the rule of law, then we have nothing at all. Bill Koch's story, his crusade against fake wine and again and against fake everything, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to hear from some of the greatest writers in this country. And some of our favorites are at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, We've talked to Heidi Mitchell, I don't know, probably a dozen times up till now. And she has a terrific weekly column that we urge everyone to go and read. And again, we do no politics here, no debating here, but we love good stories and interesting, interesting writers. And Elizabeth Bernstein is a writer at the Wall Street Journal and a columnist there. Psychology and relationships are her beat, and we love those subjects too. And she had a column that was called Fine-Tune Your BS Detector. You'll need it. And Elizabeth joins us now. Elizabeth, why did you write this? What about right now says we need to be fine-tuning our BS detectors? Well, two things, really. The first is I was attending a psychology conference in Atlanta a month or so ago, and there was a whole presentation. Researchers, psychologists, and actually computer scientists had started to research how to detect and how to confront BS. And the reason they're doing it, so my second reason for wanting to write this, first I was intrigued that they were actually studying, trying to quantify this in a scientific way, BS, but also there's so much more more of it now, uh, or it's, it's been around forever, really, but it's spreading faster and farther now because of the internet, because of bots that go on the internet. They're not even people that are spreading it with intent to harm. So um, these two things together, the fact that scientists are studying it and that it's spreading farther, we have to be more careful about it, made me think, wow, that's something we should look at. And by the way, this was the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, and the title of one particular symposium was BSing Empirical and Experiential Examinations of a Pervasive Social Behavior. So let's ask, what is BS? So BS is a form of persuasion, and uh, the the user is aiming to impress the listener by employing a blatant disregard for the facts. So they're just, it's it's different than lying. Lying is, I might want to impress you, I want you to believe what I'm telling you, but I know the facts, I'm just going to ignore them. The BSer could not care less about the facts. I'm just going to let them fly out the window, I'm just going to tell you whatever I want. And by the way, that's why we call them BS artists. I mean, no one ever calls a liar an artist. But you'll also, you'll hear it often, oh, he's a BS artist, right? Yeah, because people sort of do it. You know, some people do it. We might all, somebody might even come to mind right now for each one of us. Like we maybe, we all know somebody. But um, people do it. They're very good at it. Just And what they're good at is ignoring the facts, like completely not caring at all if there's facts out there or not. Right. Harry Frankfurt, in his very interesting book back in 2005 called On B.S., explored how BS is different than lying because liars know the truth and push it aside, while BSers don't necessarily care about the truth at all. Those are your words. So this, in a sense, the BSer is sort of like performance art, and everybody sort of knows what it is if they have any knowledge of the person doing the BSing. And uh, talk, talk about that and why you had said a little bit about how social media was making this more explosive and all the bots. But what was the deeper reason for getting at this? Because something tells me that this is starting to show up on, on couches, in, in disorders. In, I mean, there are, there are real problems attenuated with this now. There are real problems. Like, look, we're in this uh, culture right now where people claim fake news, that's a lie, and everything. It's almost like a defense. I can tell you anything I want. You can tell me back the truth, and I'm going to scream it above you, fake news, it's a lie, you're telling me the wrong. Complete disregard for facts. We are in a culture that is changing fast. 
you know, I believe over the last few years with the Internet, with things going on in the world, it's, it's uh, the discourse out there is um, angry and I, I'm not even going to listen to you. I'm just going to shout above you. And so in that kind of world right now, people who are doing that, who are these BS artists, can uh, be heard. It's almost like it's becoming a norm in a certain areas. And so that's why it really does. And with the Internet, so Facebook, I can post anything I want. And here's something interesting. People who, when they BS, when they're susceptible to BS, it's, it's the BS that they want to believe, right? right? So I may see something that says chocolate is healthy. Boy, I really want to believe that one. So I'm going to post that. I'm not going to check the facts. I'm going to tell all of my followers, hey, look at this awesome post. doesn't matter who wrote it. Be it. Chocolate is healthy. So we are susceptible to BS when we want to believe it, when it confirms our own bias. This is all out there in the Internet. Everybody's publishing everything they want on their own feeds. This is why in this environment it's really, really important that we sort of get a handle on what information is coming at us and learn to evaluate it. And also it's exactly why the scientists are studying it now. They know that this is becoming more and more hard and more and more important. Yeah, and I think that you had a line there. It said basically if you agreed with the attitude of the BSer, it was great stuff. But if you didn't, it was propaganda, and that tells us. I think that has a lot to do with how we think politically and organized politically in this country, and even on cultural, big cultural questions. And, and I think we've all had confirmation bias in this, in this area for a long time. But I thought what was really fascinating was just the, the, what happens with false news and, and rumors. And there was a study at MIT that you talked about and wrote about. Uh, tell the audience about that study, because this is what I found most interesting and, and most frightening about your piece. So MIT looked at, um, over a decade, if I remember, they looked at many, many um, rumors that were spread, information that was spread in tweets. And what they found out was that uh, the false information moved faster and farther than the truth. So when the, when the tre- tweets were based on true information, they did not go as far and they did not move as fast as the false one. And that is terrifying right now. So and what it is showing is what we were talking about, that people, when you believe it already, when it's your bias, say, you know, my dog's a beagle. I want to believe beagles are the best dogs. If I see a tweet that says that, I'm not even going to read the story, see who wrote it. I'm going to move that fast through my Twitter feed, retweet it, because um, it just it is confirming what I want to believe. And so uh, that in this environment, you're right, is terrifying that, that this false information is uh, being spread more than the truth. You know, Michael Crichton, in one of his last interviews on PBS, was asked about, he had written a book about global warming, and he said, there is global warming. I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm as good as any scientist, but I don't know how bad it is. And I think the apocalyptic predictions may be over the top. And the interviewer said, well, why do you think it is that people respond to this the way they do? And he goes, try asking somebody, hey, did you have a good day yesterday? And, and you said, yeah, I had a good day and everything's good. That's not interesting, but say the seas are overcoming the world and make apocalyptic claims and suddenly you get attention. And I think you're sort of saying the same thing here in terms of false claims. Now, he he thinks that's exact. Crichton was talking about exaggerated claims. And here we're getting right to the substance of false claims. You also write that false claims can override prior knowledge. So talk about that if you could. So people, we have this prior knowledge. I might, in the back of my head, know that beagles are not actually the best breed of dog. They're a little stubborn. They like to eat everything in sight. But I 
believe it. I want to believe it. And so when something comes at me that says uh, it's different, especially when it's repeated, this is one key thing. When information, when BS or any information is repeated, even just once, we're more likely to believe it. So uh, I may know in my head that beagles are not the best dogs, but if somebody tells me they are, I already want to believe it, and then they repeat it, I'm going to, you know, go for this. This is what I'm going to go for. Another issue that's really interesting in this uh, culture that we're in right now is we all use Facebook, Twitter, our social media to um, sort of broadcast who we are. So we want to broadcast something to our, our basically our like-minded people, our friends. And uh, we tend to then broadcast, we're susceptible then to both broadcast and believe that information that, again, confirms our bias. Uh, so I might be much more likely to read a false claim, decide I'm going to post it on Facebook because it says something about me. Again, maybe it says, you know, just to stick with the dogs, you know, I'm a beagle lover, I'm a dog lover, this is great. Um, it's called tribal epistemology. We're, we're signaling to our tribe, this is who I am, these are my beliefs, I share your beliefs. And that's where a lot of fake news comes up to when we're busy telling each other, see, I'm one of you. Yeah, and who would have known with all this open platform and all this open sourcing that we would become much more tribal as a country? And I think everyone can agree on that fact, that people are now siloing more than ever. And now when you hear a differing opinion, you just call it a lie or you call it false. You can't even stand the idea that someone might disagree with you. You can't stand it. We're at a point where we can't even dialogue. And also, I think we see this, um, again, we don't want to talk about politics, but we certainly see it in politics. But we see it in science. We see it in all areas. I, you know, we get rid of people on our feeds if they don't show us what we want to see. Like, we just get, you know, oops, that person doesn't agree with me. They might be my sister. I'm going to get rid of her on my feed. Don't want to see what she's saying all day. So um, we tend to get, you're right, much more sort of closed in. Now my Facebook feed is just people like me, because that's what I want to see when I open my phone in the morning. I don't want to see anything that I find disturbing. Um, So you're right, we're getting smaller and smaller. And again, in that space, that's where this BS is thriving. And we're learning less and less as a result. I mean, knowing, you know, the idea of a conflict of ideas, making and sharpening our ideas, well, this, this BS stuff plays a part of it. We're talking to Elizabeth Bernstein, and she writes a column at the Wall Street Journal on psychology and relationships. And let's keep doing this. I love your work, and we'd love to have you on our show more often. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for doing what you do and for writing this piece. Thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. I have sinned, your father. Father, I have sinned. Try and help me, father. Won't you let me in? Liar! Oh, nobody believes me. And we continue with our American stories, and now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of one of our regular contributors, Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're sure to be captivated by. Today, Bob shares with us his letter to his mentor, Bill Walker. Dear Bill, I can already see that telling a story about you is going to be very difficult. Not because I'm short on material, 
but my emotions keep pulling me away from our teacher and student relationship to something much deeper and more complex, something much harder to express. I'm reticent to talk about your thoughts or feelings and very reluctant to try and explain them to someone else, let alone pretend to understand what's in your heart. I know my own runs in all directions when I think about you, as no one has impacted my life as much as you have. There are probably many people out there who will enjoy the academic aspects of our relationship and the enlightenment you brought me, but it's just at the surface. When we met, I was imprisoned and lonely. I was an unhappy corporal. At 21 years of age, I had no idea of where to go in my life or that it was even capable of going anywhere. It was just all too chaotic. This is the poem I wrote at 21 years of age and at the outset of my college career asking for help. The answer and the messenger, however, that arrived was not what I expected. The poem is called The Maze. How appropriate. I sit amid a maze, walled in by my desires. Sitting here with me is this love I have. Someday, if I ever get out, I'd like to show it to you. I don't know how I got here, for it's certainly no place to be. Though you're just on the other side of the walls, you are still many miles from me. So if you love me a little and are tired of waiting about, you might find your way in and help me to get out. And then you appeared, disguised as an English professor. We are 50 years down the road in our friendship, Bill. We still speak almost every day. Even today as I write my stories, I look to you for advice and comments. I may never be able to explain the why or the how of our friendship, and if I did, I doubt that other than you, there was no one I could explain it to. I wasn't looking for a father. I had already left one behind, and I hardly fit the role of a loving son, which leaves me without an answer or explanation. Maybe our friendship is just best shared between you and me. I was sitting in the back of the class one day in May of 1970 when Mr. Walker walked in and advanced to the podium. In his arms were some books and notepads and copies of a syllabus for the English 1A course that he would teach. He wore a French beret, plaid shirt, tweed jacket, blue jeans, and cowboy boots. Well, not quite the dress I expected from a college professor, but since I hadn't been to college before, I guess I had no idea of how professors dressed. He was 20 years older than I, came from a wealthy Connecticut family, and had an incredible education and experience and immersion in the world of literature and books. As they called the name of the students, he paused when he reached mine, purposely mispronounced it, and moved on down the page before I could respond. I thought to myself sitting there, gee, he must really be pissed off about the comment I made to him after his speech class last semester. On the day I was assigned to deliver my speech in his class, he decided to let the students rap about the war in Vietnam. For the next two weeks, I sat there ready to go, but everybody wanted to discuss their feelings about the war. Being just released from active duty in the Marines, I didn't want to talk about the war. I didn't care about Vietnam anymore. I was done. I was out. I was a civilian. I wanted an education. I answered up when he called on me in that class. You should all run down the list if you're also interested in the war. 
Finally, I just ran out of patience and I cornered him in the doorway to tell him what I thought of him and his class, leaning down under that French beret and putting my face right up to that full beard of his. I said, you know, Mr. Walker, I don't like this class of yours. It doesn't have any structure to it. Now, sitting here waiting for this class to begin, I thought to myself, this is going to be a tough semester. A few weeks later, Nixon invaded Cambodia and four students were shot dead on the Kent State campus. Colleges erupted all over the country and some closed with riots breaking out. After two nights of outrunning tactical police, throwing rocks against their great shields of armor and hearing the metallic clunk, hiss and hiss of gas canisters enveloping me in a caustic fog, I went home for the night. I returned to my apartment at midnight. As I climbed into bed, I saw my English textbook. I had not opened it in three weeks. Opening it up to the assigned story was the title, The Celestial Omnibus by E.M. Forrester. By 3.30 a.m., I had read it three times, and the next morning, I was seated in the first row when Mr. Walker walked in. He was surprised to see me sitting in someone else's seat, but he said nothing about it. Neither did its prior occupant. Throughout his lecture, my arms ceaselessly kept being raised until the hour ended. I was on him immediately, asking questions and trying to understand more about this strange story that had such a great effect on me. He tried to ignore me, and when we reached his office, he took a number of large books off the shelf and abruptly told me, If you like that story, then you should read these. I'm very busy right now, and he abruptly closed the door. Summer came early that year because all the campuses were closed due to demonstrations. Working nights as a bartender gave me ample time to read each and every volume he pushed into my arms. When I completed them, I searched for his address and I walked to Woodland Avenue in Palo Alto to return them to him. His house was more like a bungalow or cottage. The front of it had a brick path with flowers running along the edges. The cottage was shaded by leafy trees and bushes in front of the windows and closing it from sight to make it more private. When he answered the door, he was surprised to see me. I offered the books and said I read them and wanted to return them, but the school was closed. Then I extended my arms towards him and put the books between his hands. It was an awkward moment, and then he invited me into his house. Crossing over that threshold, I stepped into his living room and was astonished by what I saw. All the walls were covered in bookshelves, paintings, and inscriptions of all kinds. I could see a trail of shelves meandering down the hall into his bedroom in the back. They were everywhere, from floor to ceiling. The only sound was a record playing some classical music. A couple open books sat on the arm of his couch. On the wall, there was a sign that had an inscription that read, quote, let us consider the way in which we spend our lives, end of quote. I asked him who said that. He told me it was from Thoreau. Well, I didn't know who he was, but I thought I just should try that advice sometime. I went over and I read the names and titles of the many books that covered the walls. I had to ask him, did you really read all of these? I felt as if I was standing inside his mind, that to understand who he is, one would have to read all these books. And when we come back, we'll continue with the McClellan Files 
And by the way, if you have a friend or a neighbor who's a great storyteller, send them our way. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. I bumped into Bob on a visit into the San Francisco area. A friend of mine had told me to sit down with him. And about four hours later, I was just mesmerized in his life experience and his writing talent. And he does something completely different for a living, uh, having to do with financial services. But my goodness, what a storyteller and what a writer. And by the way, if you have stories about important mental relationships, a teacher, that encourager in your life, who changed your life, again, send those stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We love hearing from ordinary Americans. We're terrific writers as a, as a country, and we have terrific stories to tell. When we come back, we continue with Bob McClellan and his talk and his letter to Bill Walker. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show. History, the arts, sports, and of course, your stories as well, stories about love and loss, the stories of hardworking Americans across this country in their voices. And of course, you can send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll edit them down, and we'll play them. We love to hear from you, and we love to hear about you and your lives One of our favorite subjects is leadership, and we talk about it a lot, at least once a week. And some of our favorites, well, Pete Pace's remarkable story, graduates from Annapolis, finds himself in a place called Vietnam. And the question is, how do you lead men who are older than you and have been in the field of combat? And Pete Pace walks some students through that conundrum. Bear Bryant and John Wooden, we did hours on those great leaders in the sports field and many more. And two of our favorites also, Ed Renzi's story. He's the CEO of McDonald's, and he started at the minimum wage there. And Faye Vincent's life and his leadership lessons. He was the commissioner of Major League Baseball and also the president of Columbia Pictures. Two very different worlds. At the top of his game, at the top of his field, in both sports and the arts. And this next segment is on Mike Levin, a friend, a business leader, And just a really, really good guy. And it's hard for many men to say that about other men. Because so many guys, well, we're a mixed bag. But Mike, a mensch, uh, if he doesn't mind me saying so. And my goodness, a lifetime of leadership in the hotel business. From growing and expanding the Holiday Inn Express brand. To, in the last episode of his career, growing and expanding the remarkable Las Vegas Sands brand. And that was in the years somewhere around the mid-2000s. Mike now is the chairman and chief executive officer of the Georgia Aquarium. And my goodness, if you haven't been, it's one of the greatest aquariums in the world, maybe the greatest aquarium in the world, and built in large measure by the generosity of Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot. And we talked to Mike uh, on and off about him performing a talk he's given now and then to young people and to old people, and in between. 
about life leadership lessons he learned. And here's Mike performing 54 things I learned in 54 years. As I reach this much maligned place in the world called retirement, it's not only with satisfaction and awe, but with trepidation. Even today, I wondered for these past months what I might say in these few minutes allotted to summarize a body of work which, in fact, represented the great majority of my life. Unable to summarize quickly, I thought I would simply speak in short sentences what I've learned since the first day on February 1, 1961. When I took a decamp bus from North Arlington, New Jersey to the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan to the shuttle to Grand Central Station and walked through a long tunnel to my seat in the sales department of the Hotel Roosevelt. So here are 54 things I learned, one for every year, not in chronological order. I learned that brains are no substitute for hard work, that every single employee is a human being that deserves dignity and care, that the customer has a voice and should be listened to, that the customer is not always right, but is always the customer, that the boss is not always right, but is always the boss, that to ask why rather than to accept an order is okay that you make mistakes and that is the best way to learn, that to listen is better than talking, that people don't always do the right thing, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't, that honesty and truth sometimes get you into trouble, but it's okay because in the end you will win, to tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said, that every person, no matter their color, gender, sexual orientation, or religion has equal opportunity and should be provided that, but should work to maintain those rights. That people everywhere care about their family, their loved ones, and their country. That international business is not a mystery. That the more diverse you make yourself, the easier it is to understand others that tolerance and patience gains respect from others and self-respect as well, that people need explanations of why they should do things you want them to do, that participation in industry activities is not only a giving experience to others, but is a learning experience for yourself, that this is a human industry where you can touch thousands and build friendships, that competitors are not enemies, that the balance sheet of life is more important than the balance sheet of the business, that Wall Street is just a street, not a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, that as a young person you learn a lot, but even as an old person you still much learn, that when you have to fire someone, never take their dignity away, that if you have a family, don't miss your kids' events, they grow up too fast. That you can balance your life and be successful. That no matter how much money you make, someone always makes more. That no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. That charity and giving are more rewarding than making and taking. 
that professionalism means not perfection, but the skill to be successful. That real peace for you financially comes when you have no debts. That the debts you have should be to people or institutions that provided your values. That corporations are not an end in themselves, they are a means to an end. That when you are mistreated, never lower your standards to behave like the one who did it. That politics exists everywhere, not only in government. That being political is a strategy that works sometimes, but not always. That doing a favor for someone else is better than getting one from someone else. That the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance. That democracy is a tough strategy and a difficult system, but seeing many others, it's still the best system invented. That capitalism provides the best opportunities, but it is not perfect and not always fair. That reading biographies teaches you lessons you cannot learn by yourself. That returning a phone call to someone you haven't heard from in years should be a joy, not a burden. That early to bed and early to rise helps to get the job done. That exercise, eating right, and dressing properly are strategies for good health and a good life. That bad things happen to good people, but that good people handle them much better. That passion for a sports team is a good relief from the normal tensions of life, but remember, it's only a game. That you should enjoy every obligation because with obligations done, responsibility is earned and success follows. That don't sweat the small stuff is a bad strategy. That your life is made up of small stuff, so live with it. That winning isn't everything, it's how you play the game that counts. That the apple of temptation is always there and you will be tested often. Be yourself and to thine own self be true should be written on every desk that you should be proud to be an American. And lastly, number 54, that the best word in the English language is love. Now it's two years since I've done this speech and I've learned number 55. Number 55 is no matter what you have done well in your life, oftentimes you will not get credit for it. And thanks so much for that, Mike, and my goodness. My favorites to tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said. Brains are no substitute for hard work. My goodness, I've seen that play out in my life and friends' lives over and over again. That no matter how much you make, that is money, someone always makes more. And then no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. And that the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance. So glad to hear that from somebody who's applied the trades in business his whole life. And lastly, the best word in the English language is love. And to hear that from a, a businessman and a friend, well, that's why he is a friend. And that's Mike Levin, who spent his life leading in the hotel business right up to one of the biggest and most well-known brands in the country, the Las Vegas Sands. And now in retirement, still running things, chairman and chief executive officer, 
the Georgia Aquarium. Take your family, take friends to this remarkable place. You'll just smile for a day. This is Lee Habib, Mike Levin's 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. In the end, his story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and we also love bringing you great commencement speeches. In West Palm Beach, Florida, Kyle Martin addressed the King's Academy's class as its valedictorian. His speech was entitled The 16th Second. The video of his speech was posted on YouTube and immediately went viral. One month later, Kyle's commencement speech received 4 million views. Here's that speech. I stand before you tonight as the 2019 valedictorian. This time last year, I found out that I was in the running for this title. It was then that I decided I wanted it. So, I worked hard for it. I sacrificed for it. And yes, I stressed for it. And I got it. (laughs) And at our senior award ceremony, it felt so good when I heard my name announced with this title. It's so good. For about 15 seconds. Yeah, 15 seconds of my heart racing and my adrenaline pumping. 15 seconds of, yeah, I won. 15 seconds of being at the top of the pile of all my accomplishments. And it felt euphoric but there must come a 16th second. And on that 16th second, sat down in my seat, I looked at my silver stole that says valedictorian, and I thought, that's it? (laughs) What just happened? Why why am I not feeling anything else? Uh, To be honest, I I don't even know what I was expecting. A parade of balloons to drop? Or maybe I was hoping that all of my problems would fade away in comparison to this amazing achievement. But none of that happened, not even in my heart. I felt nothing. I was shocked. This was a huge problem for me, and I needed to figure out why. So here was my thought process. Working hard is good. It is, in fact, biblical. But it should not be done for the sole purpose of a goal's sake at the expense of relationship with others. And looking back on this year, I realized that the stress of this year for this goal 
in a five-minute speech was paid for with the lack of attending to relationships in my life. A lesson learned and self-reflection accomplished. Now, I would like you, my fellow classmates, to do some self-reflecting. I would like you to take a moment to fill in a different thing that you strive for and you focused on. Something that you thought was the end-all, be-all. Perhaps it was sports. Perhaps it was fine arts, academics, getting into a particular school, an unhealthy social life, social media, or video games. Friends, we are about to launch into life, and we haven't messed anything up yet. Now think, instead of academics taking your focus off your important relationships, it was your career you chose over your spouse. Instead of sports, it's money that you pursue at the detriment of your children. Instead of just the Instagram-worthy picture, it's striving to be famous at the expense of time with your friends because now you're too self-involved. I'm well aware that this is kind of a downer speech, but I don't care. Because a lesson learned should be a lesson shared. Now, I'm glad that I have only made this mistake of striving for something that is in the light of eternity, not important, for just one year. I can't imagine if I had learned this at 50 or at the end of my life. And here's the lesson. Have no regrets in the 16th second. Nothing is more important than your healthy relationships. Nothing. Not your goals, not your successes. And here's why. Relationships are where we get to influence, impact, and change people's lives. Your life cannot be meaningful without them. Now we are put on this earth by our creator and we all have a purpose to advance God's kingdom that all may be saved. Now how we all go about that, that's what's different. It's different in what college we choose, who we marry, and what career we choose. It's different in the triumphs and tragedies that come upon us. But in all those things, new relationships are being formed. As you live your life on this earth, there is no greater good than you can do for a person than to love them so much that you point them to Jesus Christ. But first, he should be your first relationship that you cannot neglect. And I want you to know, I have been here at TKA for 14 years, and I love this school, and I love all of you, my classmates. And tonight, I am imploring you, if you have not begun that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, just do it. There is no better way to start something new and close a chapter of your life than with him. If he is your Lord and Savior, then make sure you care for that relationship above all others. And after that, prioritize what is important in your life and never, never lose focus of your important relationships. So be generous with your time and money and a lot of relational issues will be resolved. And by the way, it's not too late to mend fractured relationships. Any friends you haven't spoken to in a while because of your pride, parents whom you disrespected, and teachers who you never thanked. Just do it. Humble yourself. Start a conversation. Have no regrets in the 16th second. In conclusion, this has been one of the hundreds of life lessons I have learned at the King's Academy, and that has been more valuable than academics. So thank you to all who have taken the time to teach each of us our lessons. And once again, thank you to our parents 
who have been the main source of our lesson learning. We did it, you and us, and we love you for your sacrifice to put us at King's and for putting up with our attitudes along the way. Thank you for sticking with us. When we receive our diploma tonight, just know we all have earned it. And that was Kyle Martin in those words. Well, they're valuable to Christians and non-Christians alike. We brought you speeches from Admiral McRaven. That was Make Your Bed. Denzel Washington, Fall Forward. And this kid, the 16th second. Again, Christian or not, don't put work, career, or other goals ahead of your relationships. A great message from a wise young man. Kyle Martin's story, his commencement speech here on Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. And we continue with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our On Leadership series. And we bring you stories from time to time from people across every field and walk of life, from the military to business and sports, and from leaders all around this country, big names and little names too. Today, Alex Cortez brings us the voice of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and a guy who made a wood bat for his son, and it accidentally overtook Louisville Slugger as the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball and in only a decade. Here's Jack on their football recruits. When recruits come in, we had one here yesterday from Hawaii, and we're talking, and they kind of know a little bit about what we've done as research. I said, I don't go into all this stuff. I know what we do here. We, we are very unique in the aspect that what we do with ACL injuries and how efficient we are. We're, we, I think we are, if not the best at it. But I tell them, it's about, I said, it's not about football. I said, football's like taxes and death. It's gonna end. And it's probably, one thing that's different than those, it's gonna end early. Taxes gonna last forever and death, hopefully you live you know, a long life. But that's gonna end early. I said, don't think about football. What we like to do in our area is to help you pass football. There's where the influence can happen. We want to help you learn you as a young man and what do you want to do with your life? So, so we use our network to help you with that. Or we try to groom you. We try to teach you even about taxes. You're not going to realize when you get out of here and say if you do play, yeah, LSU has the most guys in the NFL. That, that's a fact. But if you get a chance to do that, think about half your salary gone. You go to California, we have players that tell us all the time, it's 52%. Said you're working basically from January through July for free. That's what you're doing. (laughs) Tredavious White, who is with the Buffalo Bills, who grew up in a, you know, not a great neighborhood, left with $21,000. Legally, may I say, because he's he's one of the best, he wore the number 18 jersey here, which represents a model person. And then we have a kid now, Devin White, who's on our team, who's going to break his record. 
Wait, did Jack just say breaking LSU's record on the amount of money saved? He's already <laughs> close to 20000 It's not a record uh, most people think about. No. So we, those are things we, we enjoy. But you can't. I mean, what do you? if you're smart, you can save. Could you imagine leaving as a college student with 21000 I certainly didn't. But what I really wanted to hear more about was this number 18 jersey thing that started with quarterback Matt Mock, who had that number. So Matt represented everything you want in your son, everything, leadership, good person, you know, just he was from Indiana, from, a, you know, an area that did woodwork. So we had a running back named Jacob Hester. He got the number, represented the same thing. So we thought it'd be a great idea to carry, this was 2004, probably, five. So Matt was our national championship quarterback, then Hester, was our national championship running back. And uh, so he wore the 18, and thought it'd be a good idea to hand this down to someone who's come through, at, at first, low adversity, good person. So the tradition started handing down 18. Every 18 now was voted by the equipment guys, the um, sports information, weight room. Everybody had a say to say, all right, this is the guy we, like this is the, this is our leader this is the person we want to be our son and obviously the head coach now has the final say before it was just kind of internal now it's become it's in the it's in the college hall of fame the story or the 18 what it represents so any scout that comes here they know well he wore 18 so we don't have to ask about character so Tredavious White wore the 18 for two years because he got it when he was a junior and um, so we're waiting to see who we got this year who's going to be nominated. And we just found out, this was a couple years ago, uh, Louisiana was the 18th state in the United States. <laughs> so, uh, which was a, a thing. And, and Shelly, who's, who's Jewish, she's one of my assistants, she's one of the first female assistants. I hired her as a female assistant in, in 1996, which none of the SEC schools had. And she goes, you know, 18 for the Jewish folks is a lucky number for us. It stands for a significant deal, the number 18. So 18 has become a huge deal at LSU now. And are guys now actually competing on character to get the number 18? Now they do. Now they do. So that is something I really like. Because I was telling Hester, I said, just think about it. Before a game, they sold number seven jersey and 18s become... You see all these little 18s running around. That wouldn't have been a number yet, but it, it, it's become a number because of what you guys have done. It's a staple number now. Typically, at a university, you say, and I think this is an advantage of ours, all right, we're gonna have treatments at six o'clock in the morning. Okay, six o'clock. So everybody rushes in, you treat them, look at them, and get them out. When Saban was here, his staff meetings, they had meetings in the morning, but the big staff, when I had to do their injury report, was at 10. I said, all right, you guys have to be here from 7 o'clock to 10. I have to see you before that. Now, what that did is I always have one-on-one -on -one time and talk to them. Because I always instruct our doctors, there's an approach you go when you examine a player. We're not going to use the word tear, we're going to use the word sprain. And we're going to always find out the positive. If a kid tears his ACL and his cartilage is fine, we're going to say, man, yeah, you tore your ACL, but your cartilage looks great. And that's where you develop that one-on-one. -on -one. Because injuries, as mental as anything else, 
and we always get kids back faster. They're, it's always safe, but there's a mental aspect that you can make them believe. And you don't want to, I never hate to give them time frames. We always say we're going to take it day to day or week to week. So we have trained our physicians to say that. I always believe I had an opportunity to multiple NFL teams and matter of fact there was one about a month ago. I said I'm not going to take the job. They begged me, you know, I, I did listen to them because they kept saying, look, you can do this, this. And I, my passion was never in the NFL. I worked camps, Browns 85, Buccaneers 87. <laughs> That's when we had three days at Tampa. <laughs> I mean, that was the worst camp ever. But I, uh, side so no, and their GM, vice president, they were disappointed. And so they said, we don't know where to start. Tell us what you want in an athlete. What do you look for when you hire somebody? I said, you guys are going to overcomplicate. I said, you only need three things. I said, a good person, good heart, compassionate, stays above board. Second thing's personality. You got to have somebody that has a personality that can talk to people. I said, the latest studies have showed people with personality have better careers than people with high IQs. It's, it's proven. And that's, I'm not saying you gotta be dumb, but they are, They're, they are better. And I said, the third thing, keep an open mind. Have somebody that's open-minded. Not so open-minded, your brains will fall out, but open-minded to change and, and willing to do it. I said, that's it. And if you have that, that's what I've hired here. We don't lose people, we don't. And uh, I, I also focused on a lot of Midwest people, to be honest with you, because of values. I have. I'm not saying there's, it just works for us. So I end up helping them with the search, and we found somebody. And I think, again, people overcomplicate things. But really, it's, that's all you need. I've been approached many a times, and one thing, I, and this last time, our administration was very good. They said, which I felt good about. They said, I've never come up there for money for myself. I've always come up for my assistance the whole time I've been here, never once. Our assistants are one of the higher paid. I wasn't, I was probably mid-pack, but um, one of the senior associates mentioned that to the administration, said, you know, here's a guy here that doesn't, never asked for money. And again, I always believe if you do the right thing, that, that comes with it. But again, how much do you need? Get something to drive around, something decent, decent house. All right, let's go. You don't need all them rooms in a house. What are you doing with all them rooms? Status? What do you need in life? I mean, you really, you just want your kids to stay healthy and try to help others. You know, and, and that's the reason why I'm still an athlete trainer. It's nice to have the ability to influence young people because if you don't, then I think that's the void. I try to teach these guys, if they're successful in football, take care of, there's a family that you probably grew up that didn't have much, but do something for them. It'll be the most rewarding thing that you have. And what a voice. You're listening to Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports, whose wood bats accidentally overtook Louisville Slugger as the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball. And all in only a decade. When we come back, more on leadership and life with Jack Marucci. This is Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories and our Own Leadership series with Jack Marucci. And Jack's the director of LSU's athletic training, and his Marucci Sports has the number one bat in Major League Baseball. Now let's return to Jack. I have a son who I start making the bats for, he plays college baseball. So I wanted to tell him how fortunate he was. And I pulled up, and they just did the new stats, the NCAA. It has the percentage of playing Division I sports. College football is only 2.6%. College baseball is 2.1%. That is it. 98% is not going to be playing collegiate sports. That's how low the odds are. Men's basketball is 1%. And I don't think people realize the odds are that low. So he comes back from Christmas break and goes, hey, Dad, I, I talked to our coach and we had our exit interview and he heard that I was going to go to graduate school and, you know, I kind of have a plan. And he said, so, Gino, you don't have baseball in your future and, you know, you're not really counting on it. And he goes, well, let me tell you a story. When I was in seventh grade and I told my dad I want to be a baseball player. He goes, my dad looked at me and says, no, you're not. You're not that good. And he, he goes, my dad told me two things. He goes, you better worry about education and treating people right. And he says, my coach loved it. He goes, he, he, he about fell out of the chair. And he goes, you know, that's refreshing to hear something like that. So, you know, it, it always lends to me that, you know, babies are born the same since the you know, 50s, 60s, you know, DNA is there. But I think parenting has changed today's society. And you see it very strong in sports. That's where it pokes its ugly head. You know, if their little son, Johnny, eight, nine years old, had a good week in baseball, the parents all happy at work. And if the kid struck out two or three times and they're down in the dumps and they're upset. So it's very conditional. And I think it's conditional love. It's conditional if they hit the ball or don't hit the ball. I mean, that's what we're at now. Uh, or did he make the goal? Or, he, you know, he made the winning basket or he missed it. So, you know, I think, we are a society who's becoming a parent is becoming so enabling and protecting their kids way too much. And yes, you can be anything you want. That is true to a certain extent, but I wasn't gonna be an NBA basketball player. Yes, you can be an accountant or something, but even then, some people are limited the way they process information. It is, it's, it's facts. You know, some people, that's why you have all these different careers. You know, if everyone was good at math, we'd have everybody was an accountant. <laughs> but no, we have everybody's wired differently, and that's what makes the world so unique. And that's where you have to plug everybody in. And, and I always believe people should work on their strengths, not weaknesses. Let someone else adapt to your weakness. They have that strength. That's how you build, I think, a good team. But my son, you know, we didn't do the travel ball. We were the anti-establishment, maybe because we were lazy, too, as parents, and we wanted to go on vacation. But, you know, we built the wiffle ball field where he learned to play. In their backyard. Which looked like a major league field now. We were a little obsessive on it. But he, he, he had the ability to play college baseball. And like I told him, only 2.1% play Division One baseball. Be very thankful. And I think that you don't have to do all these excessive things for your children. Let them be kids. Let them figure things out. Um, play in the backyard. Let them compete in the neighborhood. They'll learn a lot of those traits. Yes, you have to have reps and be good at something, but I think you have to all keep it in perspective because parents become so aggressive today. It's like if you look at elbow injuries have gone up. It's not because of curveball. Oh, well, he's not throwing curveballs. Well, it's, it's the you only have so many throws in your arm. If you're using all your throws up from 8, 9, 10 because of those tournaments, you want to win that little ring, 
you know, that's what it is. Everybody's not Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan, again, is his DNA is a lot different than everybody else's. But you have had a lot of great pitchers that they never got there because they eventually blew their arm out. That's because they used it up when they were younger. And I think you have to take multi-sport kids, let it play out that way. Our best athletes here at LSU are the multi-sport kids. Football, for example, we, we haven't seen kids like a, a Dwayne Bowe didn't go out until he was a junior in high school. And he was an NFL first rounder. So don't put your kids into all these drills and stuff when they're young and feel like it's, it's become the chore. All your kids are gonna tell you the same thing. You hear it from every parent. Oh, he loves it. He loves the travel ball. Oh, he, he can't get enough of it. Well, the parent can't get enough of it. The kid's not gonna tell you that because basically he's not gonna wanna disappoint the parent is what it is. And you can try to enable again all these things. And that's, I think that's what we've seen more than anything. And I think that's where we've gotten away from the, the core value as a kid, because a, a child still wants to be a child. He still wants to have fun. But I think parents today have seen this competitive edge having their kids live through their kids, and especially through athletics. It's almost child abuse because of some of these injuries you see on these kids and they're pushing them. Why would you want your kid to have a Tommy John at the age of whatever, 13, 14, when it can be avoided? Let their bodies develop, let them have the ability to, again, enjoy the game. It, you know, you see baseball played all, all year round. And I use this analogy. I'll bring up the pizza analogy again. I love pizza. But eating it every day may not taste as good if you just wait every couple weeks or every week. It tastes better. It's like when we were all in school. We couldn't wait to get out at the end of the year. We loved it. As much as we hated school, we were kind of excited when school started. We did it the first couple of days because too much of a good thing is not a good thing. If you're playing baseball, they're never excited to play. I saw it in my son. When baseball season came, he was fired up. He was more fired up than everybody because everyone else playing all year round. He's ready to get in there. He can sustain that passion for the season because he's not burned out with it. It's not. It's not humdrum, it's new, it's exciting. He's ready to get back at it. Because if you take something away too, it makes things better. And to close, we hear from Jack Murchie about another leader and one of the former coaches he worked for and won a championship with, Florida State's Bobby Bowden. I think Bowden did a good job because of who he was as a person. He was a very religious, you know, every Friday night, in which I don't know if you could do this today, you know, he brought in God's Word and he tied it in to the theme of if we're playing Notre Dame or we're playing Florida, and he had a story. And I think it changed, probably from osmosis, some of the kids you could see evolve from that part of it. I'll tell you one story he talked about. It was when he was at West Virginia. And he told the story about how you know, when you think things are bad and how God will turn things around when you least expect it. So there was this player that his parents were blind. Never got to see him play. Never got to see him play. His dad always wanted to see him play. You know, his dad would come to games and hear the crowd noise. And it meant a lot to the athlete. But he always wished his dad could see you know, his son play. So he says his dad got ill, got very sick. The kid was struggling that season. His dad passed away. 
and the kid has a breakout game. And he goes, you know, why would you play so well? He goes, well, that's the first time my dad saw me play. <laughs> I mean, it's touching. Um, and, you know, just what a story. And he said, you know, that was the first time. He talked, you know, it was God's will, but he's in heaven, he got to see me play. And he said, that's why I played so well. I mean, just uh, sticks with you. You've been listening to Jack Marucci, again, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports, and just one of the great voices in college sports. And when you're running the training, the athletic training for a school like LSU, it is one heck of a big job, one of the most important jobs. And faith is a big part of Jack's life, and he doesn't scream up and down about it, but it's a big part of his life. And my goodness, the kids... I've always thought he would give up that company in a heartbeat if it was a choice between the company and working on those sidelines. Jack Marucci's story on leadership here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this is the story of how a Florida couple kept seven siblings, four brothers and three sisters, ages 12 to 4, together that were separated throughout four different foster homes. Sophia and Deshaun Olds, both 33, got married in 2004, and they admit that as newlyweds, they were too busy with schooling and serving in the military, both veterans who served overseas in Iraq, to think about starting a family. This is the story of how one childless married couple of 13 years became a family of nine, literally, overnight. We thought like we would never, ever get adopted, but I thought this was like a really good blessing for us. I never actually had a mom and a dad under the same roof. But it feels great. It's like they both like a half of something, like peanut butter and jelly. Hello, I'm Deshaun Oles. And I'm Sophia Oles. And we would like to tell you about our process, our story of adoption. We have always wanted to adopt. We've been married for about 13 years now and it had always been in our plans to adopt and to have biological children. We actually took the classes in 2006 and were preparing to adopt a child. However, we couldn't agree upon an age. So we postponed it, got busy with life, enjoying life, continuing in our careers in college, military, us traveling, We just were enjoying life. We were having a wonderful time together with family, with friends. 
I know a lot of people probably wonder and question why is it that they don't have biological children. It just never happened for us. In 2013, I took a pregnancy test and the test came back positive. And it was the scariest thing to me. I cried and I cried and I cried because I wasn't ready to be a mother. I know that being a mother is one of the most important jobs, number one, in this world. And I guess I felt like I wasn't ready to do that, that I couldn't be that yet. And a couple days later, um, I miscarried. It was confirmed by the doctors, and I had miscarried. And again, I felt another form of sadness because you know, a child that we would have, we no longer would have. Even though we were early on in our pregnancy, it was it was still devastating for me. No, I hadn't felt the baby kick. I hadn't felt the baby move, but it was devastating. But again, we continued life. Also, we were very active in our local church. So we were active in, my husband is the youth pastor. Children's Church, ages what? Four to 12. Always been a part of my life just to help out with children in the church. And I guess one thing we always did is that every time we gave our offering, we had on the back of it, um, adopted child on there. And then it was just no surprise that the story came out the day after Thanksgiving. And the day of Thanksgiving, what most people are doing is shopping. How we are shopping, and we saw the story on Facebook. These seven children who needed a home. It was home for the holidays. And one scripture just came to my mind is that in my father's house there's many rooms, and I go prepare a place for you. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do things on earth as it is in heaven. So we had a space to truly be to open our home for seven children. And we knew that we had everything that these children needed. They needed a mother, a father. They needed stability, structure, discipline with us having military. They needed love, they needed care. My husband being a teacher, me and being in social work, having those skills, the spiritual background, everything. We were just putting our whole hope and our whole trust and all of our, our dreams and our ambitions and our life in his hands. We were surrendering all when we decided to adopt our seven children. Yeah. And once we put our faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. These students I've been serving at Rutherford High School, their parents came together and said, what can we do? What can we do? And they did everything from bringing furniture to build bunk beds to donate sports equipment to donate groceries. One parent is a farmer and truly just slaughtered a pig for us. So we have sausage, bacon, and everything else. And also our families, a day hasn't gone by that they haven't asked us or given to us, whether it be snacks for the children to take to school, whether it be cooking up a big pot of 
llama beans, helping out, cooking food, getting the children off the bus when we Picking both have oranges. to work. Picking oranges, whatever it is, any extra that they have had, anything that they could give, whether it be $5, we have had that outpouring from our families from both sides. We have had that from complete strangers that live thousands and thousands of miles away. It has been no stress, no struggle at all. And I do believe that that goes back to us doing the will of God to help build his kingdom, to provide a home for, as the Bible calls them, orphans. You know, that is something that the Bible states we should do. Yes, in James 127, it says true religion is to take care of the orphans. And we all know that it's more blessed to give than to receive if we were allowed to adopt these seven children, we would do it. We would work every day of our lives to make sure that they are cared for. And I think what's most important too is for them to see and to have an example of what it's like to have a father who is the head of the household, who has a strong faith and belief in God and who can teach them, who can lead the family. And I know that they enjoy that. I know that they feel privileged and proud to know that their dad is up there teaching them. You can see the smiles on their face and they enjoy talking about it afterwards. They ask lots of questions. Um, So that whole aspect has been wonderful to have him up front teaching our children um, about God, about the things that they should do in life to be saints, to be good children, to grow up, to be successful. Yep. And I like to just thank for my spiritual fathers because I do not have a biological father involved in my life, but my spiritual fathers from my pastors to different men in my church who helped show me the way right there. And I could just use that to impart not only to my children, but all the children I minister to on a weekly basis. So I think it's important to know that in this story of adoption, I am not called to be a minister, to be behind a pulpit, to preach at a church, to be a pastor. But I know that this is my calling that God has placed in my life and I am embracing it. I am enjoying it. And that's why I can say that I am not stressed because it is something that we are doing that we are supposed to do. So it makes it so much easier. Does it require a lot from us? A lot of time, um, a lot of correction that we have to do, but it is also worth it, every part of it. This is what we're supposed to do in life. These seven children are our calling to be their mother and their father. And we take it just as serious as if Um, It was a pastor over a church or a CEO over a business. This is us, a manager over a team. This is us. This is what we are called to do. And we give him all the praise, the glory, the honor for it, because without him, we would not be able to do this. And we are doing it. And that is our story. And what a story it was. And thanks, Greg, for doing that. And thank you, Sophia and Deshaun Olds, for recording that. And for doing what you did, it's an inspiration. People listening who are thinking about it, well, just do it. Fill that house up with love. They immediately adopted seven children who needed a home. 
and one's a teacher. Uh, They didn't have the means, but they did it anyway. And look at the fruits of their love. And it was their faith, of course, the fruits of their faith. They just did it. They answered to a higher power. And by the way, NBC's Today Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Miami Herald, Parents.com, and People, they all did this story, but they somehow managed to leave the faith walk of this couple out of the story. And just a few things they said, and it was Sophia who said this, once you put your faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. And in came the food, and in came the help from the family members, in came all that love. True religion is to take care of the orphans. And if more Christians in this great country did what this young couple did, my goodness, we could solve a lot of problems in our country. A lot of homeless problems, a lot of kids without parents. And we'll bring these adoption stories to you because they're beautiful, and hopefully they have some imitative power. That is, some of you listening may just decide to fill your home with some kids in need. This is Our American Story, Sophia and Deshaun Olds' story, and those seven kids they adopted, their stories too.